This podcast has been brought to you by Creative Podcasts. Hello, I'm Lainey Malkani and welcome to Debut, the podcast series that talks to first-time writers about their books, the writing process and what it feels like to finally get published. Ian Davies' debut novel, Foretold by Thunder, is a thriller that speeds along at an incredible pace. His main character is journalist Jake Woolsey, who travels the world trying to unlock the secrets of an ancient prophecy. There's a love interest, archaeologist Florence Chung, and both are pursued by MI6 and other secret services across the globe. As for the author, he's an investigative journalist and a self-confessed history geek and a big fan of Sir Winston Churchill, who also has a role to play in his novel. So let's get to it. Ed began by telling me what Foretold by Thunder was all about. It's a thriller with historical elements uh, and a strong sort of adventure travel Uh, theme to it. It's set in the here and now and it's about a journalist who discovers a declassified World War II document that shows um, the Prime Minister Winston Churchill had a strange interest in the ancient Etruscan civilization. He then gets drawn into a web of espionage and a fight between the Chinese Secret Service and MI6. It's intriguing stuff but why choose the Etruscan era? The ancient Etruscans were a really fascinating um, culture who believed it was possible to interpret future events by studying bolts of lightning. In the Italian peninsula, they were the forerunner to the Roman civilization. So I, when I just heard about them and that that was the basis of their religion, I thought how fascinating it would be to write a thriller on the premise that this techniques of lightning prophecy actually worked. What if they actually worked? How would that have changed history? And so this journalist starts to see tiny hints to the effect that this stuff might actually work and he can't believe it, he can't believe what he's seeing. So how does he get drawn into the plot? Slowly, different facts and events from real history which I've discovered that sort of dovetail with documented strikes of lightning begin to confirm his theory. It then becomes a a sort of race for him to try and find the Etruscan holy text which is effectively a a manual for predicting the future. He wants to destroy it because he's convinced it's a, a force for evil in the world. Uh, whereas megalomaniac politicians and members of uh, MI6 and the Chinese Secret Service uh, hope to obtain it and use it for their own crooked ends. Look, I know that you are a historian, essentially, because you did history at university, so you're very interested in it. But what came first in your novel? The historical aspect? Was it the journalistic aspect, because you're a journalist? How did it all come about? I was looking for something to write, I was looking for an idea and um, I had just become a member of the British Museum because as you rightly say I am a bit of a history geek um, and I saw a lecture at the British Museum by an American historian called Jean McIntosh Turfer who is a lovely lady and an absolutely amazing archaeologist. Her lecture was called Foretold by Thunder which is the title of the book. I went along to the lecture, I was really inspired. The Etruscan religion was even more fascinating than I'd imagined when when it was unfolded by her and just the thought that there was this civilization who based their entire culture off lightning I just found really beguiling um, especially given its geographical location you know in Italy in the center of the ancient Mediterranean the center of the world really for them to have this sort of pagan belief system that to them was almost more of a science than a than a religion I just thought it was so fascinating there and then knew that this is the novel I wanted to write. So I went up to her after the lecture and said, 
hello, I've really enjoyed your lecture. I'm going to try and write a novel inspired by it. And I think she looked at me like I was absolutely barking mad. And then after two more two years later and lots of trials and tribulations, when it actually, when I realised it was going into print, I got back in touch with her and said, you might remember me. I was that weird guy who uh, came up to you. Well, uh, it's, I've actually written it and uh, <laughs> thank you. And what was her response? She was really delighted and she said that funnily enough, she'd just been, she a memory of me had popped into her head and she was just wondering if I'd done it. And then I emailed her out of the blue. Um, we met up a few months ago when she came on a lecture tour to the UK. She's based in Pennsylvania, um, but she went and spoke at Oxford and she invited me along and we went to this really po- frightfully posh dinner at a, one of the old school Oxford classics colleges and I was surrounded by the proper experts in Etruscan. There's, a, there's only a dozen people in the world who can speak Etruscan, their language. And she's one, she, well, no one can speak it, but read it, understand it. It's an extinct language and probably half of them were in that room. Uh, I felt very much like the kind of idiot compared to them. But So are you the journalist? Are you the central character because you come from journalism? Uh, I'm not the central character, no, but... And I, I don't think I am as interesting or hopefully not as flawed and have so many internal kind of conflicts and problems. Well, that, well OK, conflicts and problems. <laughs> so that, start, that sounds like a very interesting character. So who is he? Tell me about him. Uh, his name is Jake Wolsey. He's aged 33. He is a journalist on a, a national broadsheet newspaper, although I don't say which one. Um, and he is a, a really nice guy, but really downtrodden. And, you know, he feels that life is passing him by, he can't get a girlfriend, he drinks too much, like he's going backwards on, he's slipping down on his newspaper, he's, his career's not going well, he can't quite find the energy to turn it around. He sort of suspects that he's been born with some gifts, but he can't find a way to apply them. So he's basically a bit of a hopeless guy, but hopefully a lovably hopeless guy, uh, who you want to see turning his life around and, you know, being happy. Um, but he's also very deep down, quite valiant and quite brave, but he doesn't discover that until later on in the book. So part of the book is about him being thrown into this extraordinary set of circumstances and within him discovering a valiance and a braveness that he didn't know he had in him and in thus doing, meeting the girl of his dreams. Perfect. <laughs> If I was to look for your book on a bookshelf, where would I find it? I suppose it could just about sit in a historical fiction shelf. It could just about sit on a travel writing shelf because it goes to some quite exotic places. Uh, but really, I've, I just tried to write a kind of classic thriller that's hopefully page turning. And I would never compare myself sort of say it's as good as these writers, but I suppose it's a bit like Dan Brown. It's a bit like Robert Harris in that uh, there's a bit of counterfactual history in there and a few what ifs and stuff. Why was Winston Churchill your starting point? Oh, good question. I mean, I think Churchill is just a fascinating character who everyone has an opinion on, and lots of people really love Churchill. Lots of people don't think he was all that great. Um, But everybody knows him straight away, so, you know, you don't have to sort of set up who Churchill is. And he's just, he's he's one of those characters who who gives, who adds an instant drama to to any narrative. Because, I mean, his own life was a, a fantastic story, the likes of which he simply couldn't make up. You know, a, a bit like Jake Wolsey, a very heavy drinker. In fact, he drank a lot more, I suspect, than my main character. And this guy had a half a bottle of champagne for breakfast every day. Quite how he kept on going to 90 is a bit of a mystery. I think Churchill was 
by by the standards of modern the modern day he believed some things that would be very un- politically incorrect nowadays but i do think he was a really great man and a really brave man and a formidable intellect and a brilliant writer and just what a character and we should be proud that we had a bloke like that come from these islands because he was just such an interesting person so yeah i think just a, a fascinating person to get in there and gives you lots and lots of scope for interesting interesting things did you have to ask permission to use Rinstone Churchill in the way that you did? Um, not Churchill um, per se, although later on in the book, I, Rudolf Hess um, comes into it, who was Adolf Hitler's deputy, and uh, Hess fled Germany in 1941 in, slightly mis- in real life in slightly mysterious circumstances and ended up flying to Scotland. Um, basically in an attempt to try and make peace because he Hitler didn't want to really be fighting Britain. He thought he was fighting the wrong war and Hess cooked up this crackpot plan. He thought if he could land in Britain, he alone would persuade the Brits to make peace. So he got in a Messerschmitt, he could fly, flew a fighter jet to Scotland trying to make contact with a, a an aristocrat who was pro allegedly pro-Nazi um, and ended up just getting arrested and being locked in the Tower of London. But he was... Uh, interviewed by a British psychiatrist uh, called Dr Henry Dix who uh, who was trying to find out what made the leading Nazis tick in the hope that it would well actually I think he, he was mainly treating Hess as a patient but he was also trying to find out what, what would make the leading Nazis tick and I discovered that he, his notes on Hess still exist and are held at the Wellcome Trust Library and they are an absolutely fascinating read. So I wanted to use that report. And in, in the book, I have four, quote unquote, missing pages of his book, which reveal a large part of the plot and the mystery. Uh, so for that, yes, I had to um, I had to get the permission of his family because his notes were still in copyright, A. But B, you know, his sons are still alive. So it would have seemed a bit disrespectful just to have slammed their dad's diary in there without asking so I managed to track them down, uh, and it, you know, I'd already written the book by then, so it was a bit of a nervous wait. Um, but they did give me permission to reproduce the pages I wanted from the diary, and I thought it was really nice as well. They asked me to just make clear that, as far as they were concerned, as far as anyone knows, their father's role was a medical one, that he was not there on behalf of the Secret Services, that he kind of kept to his Hippocratic oath, effectively. So yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of asking for permission from people I've discovered. An awful mm. lot. And and as you said yourself, quite nervous, nerve-wracking wait, especially if you've already written extracts of the book. Yeah, but people are generally really, really helpful, I've discovered. Academics are helpful and give up their time for free. You know, I've lost count now. I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep a list of them all because I have to say thank you to all of them at the end of every book. But, you know, people, experts, are very, very happy to share their knowledge for purposes of fiction. Mm. Well, let's put the book aside for a moment um, and and talk about you. So, what what was the reason that you got into writing? And 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 in fact, let's start first with the journey of getting this book to be published because it doesn't didn't happen overnight, did it? Oh wow! How long have you got? Um, mm. we, I could, this this could take hours. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and keep it short. Yeah. Uh, I wrote the first book. Uh, I got a agents interested in the book. Uh, but basically, I'd written a really weird book and no one was quite sure how to market it. So I wrote another book. And yeah. actually, then you, you hit gold, basically. I think I've been pretty lucky, actually, because, you know, I've, I think it, who was it? Was it possibly 
uh, one really famous novelist, I'm not sure who reckoned he'd written a million words before he started to produce stuff that was publishable. And I, I must have done, including short stories and abortive projects, maybe 400,000 words. So... Oh, you haven't earned, earned a badge of honour now, you see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I do consider myself to be extremely lucky, but it it's a huge amount of this business is a complete lottery. You've almost finished your second novel, and now you're going on to the third. And for, by the sounds of it, they all involve a lot of travel. Where in the world have you been? Oh goodness! Um, I've been I've been to quite a few places. I've sort of spent every spare penny I've I've had really since I was a teenager on travelling. So I've been to quite a few weird and wonderful places. I've done a real focus on travel in Africa. I absolutely adore that continent. So in Africa, I've been to Mozambique, Republic of Congo, Burundi, Tanzania, Ethiopia, South Africa, Ghana. Um, mm. Sierra Leone, Morocco, Egypt. But very soon, I'm, I'm shortly flying to to Kyrgyzstan and travelling down to Tajikistan. Uh, so yeah, I'm constantly, constantly on the go. And I think last year, I probably went to about ten countries, you know, m- mainly for book two. Lots just for a couple of days, but zipping in and out. And one of the lovely things about travelling to research fiction is it just takes you to some weird places that you would never normally fit on an itinerary. For example, when I was in Tanzania uh, a few months back, we were retracing the footsteps of Dr. David Livingston as researcher of part of this book because that's what the main characters end up doing. So that took us to some really lesser visited parts of western Tanzania on the shores of Lake Tanganyika and then up into Burundi, which at the time was just hovering on the brink of civil war and still is. So Burundi was seriously hairy and you know we spent about four or five days there. A friend of mine came with me and... Yeah, there were armed soldiers at every hundred meters on the street. President convoy went past with twenty pickup trucks with heavy machine guns mounted. Uh, capital city felt on the edge. Very quite a scary place. After six o'clock, it suddenly gets very dark. Lots of it's not even paved, and it had been really rainy, so it was like Glastonbury. Basically, it was incredibly muddy. But the people in Burundi are like lovely and quite startled to see you there, particularly when you get up into the hills. I would never normally have gone to Burundi and I would almost certainly never normally have stood on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. So, you know, when when your plots take you to these places, you have to actually go to them and it's just amazing, you know. It just uh, it just takes you to strange and interesting places you'd never normally go to. How do you research fiction? I think if you're asking people to take a leap of faith with you and make you know, willingly suspend disbelief with some fairly far-fetched suppositions as I'm asking the reader to do in my books everything else has to be absolutely as real as possible so that your the the fantasy element or the the perhaps ever so slightly far-fetched element is is buttressed by a very a world that feels very real and feels very trustworthy and is full of bits of color and observations that you just know the author must have been there because it's too random to be to be made up for example I don't know in Burundi there are very few vehicles. It's the fifth poorest country in the world, according to the UN. So most of freight is done by bicycle. So the roads, are, the main roads, are absolutely choked with people pushing bikes that are laden up to the sky with mattresses or bananas or televisions sort of teetering along. And I wouldn't have known that unless I'd actually turned up there. So if you can 
absolutely research the heck out of your book and then very carefully select the very, very best bits of your research to go in, then hopefully it just allows the reader to believe in the plot and, and go along with it. And, and also because not everybody has the time and, or ability to go to places like the Congo or Burundi or Sierra Leone or would want to even, but might be interested as to what they're like. I kind of think it's part of my duty as a journalist as well as a writer to go there and, and tell people what it's like and hopefully it will have the feeling of doing some pretty crazy travelling but from your armchair. What's happening next? So we, we talked, we very briefly mentioned the second book and even briefer, the third. Um, so what what's the plan for you? Uh, the second book um, is due for publication next summer so unless there are any unforeseen delays I would hope uh, next July Uh, and that is another book about with the same characters about lightning prophecy uh, and that instead of looking back to ancient Rome in the second world war which foretold by thunder looks back to uh, it it provides sort of counterfactual history of the 19th century so the book's called the Napoleon complex it looks at Napoleon who's a really fascinating guy and I've used loads of Napoleon's original correspondence and original all, all, all the quotes from historical figures in the book are real um, and then it goes on to be all about the British Empire and how lightning prophecy was woven into the, the, you know, the fate of the British Empire so I've researched all of Napoleon's original letters, I've researched original letters by some of the great British Prime Ministers of the 19th century um, and really read literally thousands of their letters and diary entries looking for original comments that they that they genuinely made about lightning about fate about telling the future things that i can then take out of context and weave together to create a false reality that's it's it's sort of an epigraphical novel really where it's it's a kind of jigsaw puzzle of different things that different real historical figures have said sort of quite craftily woven together to form a narrative that hopefully feels like a believable page-turning thriller. So what I really like about that, and the book, the book needs a lot of work, definitely, but what I think might be quite fun about it is you get the actual real voices of these historical people there, which adds a kind of colour and texture that you, I don't, you know, I don't, unless you're a genius, I don't think you could write. So that's that's the second book. Brilliant. And then the third... The third is something totally different, um, which is good because I've basically run out of ways to describe lightning now. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's called uh, The Sapien Paradox. And it's it's a thriller again, but it's basically on this premise that um, written history, recorded history goes back just 5,000 years. Uh, but anatomically modern human beings, Homo sapiens, have been on the planet for about 120,000 years which means that people just as intelligent as you or I or your listeners uh, have been walking the earth for 115,000 years, leaving barely a trace of what they were up to, who they were, what they believed. So the thriller sort of sets out to ask the question, what on earth were we doing all that time? And it's it's, it's probably a sl- going to be a slightly darker thriller. Um, it's quite adult in its themes, which are basically sort of genocide and war um and so i look at genocides in recorded history but also the genocides that are believed to have happened in prehistory that there are no records of apart from archaeological records of bones and things like that um so this the main character will be making a series of discoveries 
about things that happened in prehistory that illuminate uh, the human condition and throw some light on the sort of the will to destruction that seems to be etched on the minds of men as opposed to women. <laughs> oh my it. god, I can't wait! So it's a bit. It's, it it's, sounds it's, fantastic. Yeah, it's you know it's going to be a real challenge. Uh, I just hope I can pull it off. But I've certainly got lots of ideas, and I've got lots of interesting countries that we can go to. And I've hopefully got a, a nice idea for a main character. Um, oh, honestly, absolutely can't wait, Ed. Thank you so much. One last question before you go: What's it like seeing your book on a bookshelf? It, it really, I still get a. This is a bit of a cheesy answer, I'm afraid, but I do still get a little kind of like my stomach flips slightly every time I see it on the shelves. Because I have been, I mean, I could tell you now every major title in the bookshops this summer because I've spent so much of my time, like some kind of ghoul, lurking in bookshops, seeing if my book's in there and being a bit disappointed when it isn't, but really excited when it is. That's brilliant. Ed Davey, author of Foretold by Thunder. Thank you. Thanks so much. Absolute pleasure. E.M. Davies' debut novel, Foretold by Thunder, is published by Duckworth. I'm Lainey Malkani, and join me next time on Debut, the podcast series that talks to first-time writers. This podcast was brought to you by Creative Podcasts.